Welcome, ankle biters. You stumbled on the far, far's far-fetched fables, the home of tall tales, old chestnuts, fish stories, and other unassorted yarns. We mostly cater to the youngins here, but you grown-ups can have a listen too. If you have a mind to, tap on the subscribe button, whatever that is, or like us on the Facebook. In the meantime, turn off the TV, put down the cell phone, get yourself a glass of warm milk, and settle in for some old-time storytelling. Tonight's episode... Chapter 2. The Young Paul Many, many years have passed since Paul Bunyan was born. In fact, so long ago has it been that no one knows just who his parents were, though it is said that his father was a fine, upstanding man of great strength and his mother a sturdy lass from one of the French-Canadian provinces. Whoever they were, they must have been very proud of their lusty son, as well they might be. His birthplace is said to have been somewhere along the northern coast of Maine, and the time was long ago, before the Revolutionary War, while England still ruled the Thirteen Colonies. Paul grew so fast that he was the wonder of people for miles around. When he was only a few weeks old, his mother had to fix his bed out of doors, for he had grown so big by that time that he could no longer be taken through the door of his parents' cabin. The out-of-doors air seemed to agree with him, however, and he continued to thrive until one night he got the colic. (laughs) Being such a big youngster, there was a very great deal of him to have the colic, as one may well believe, and his pain must have been fully in keeping with his size from the tremendous commotion which he stirred up. All the neighbors for miles around thought they were hearing the roar of a terrific storm and hid in their cellars until it should blow over. Perhaps his breaking into his father's smokehouse that day had something to do with his illness. The family's winter supply of smoked hams, bacon, and salt pork were stored there. But when Paul was discovered, sound asleep in the center of the smokehouse floor, there was not a single ham or side of bacon left in sight. The grease on his hands and face showed pretty surely what had happened to the missing vittles. And as the youngster had only one tooth at the time, he most likely did not give the rich meats the thorough chewing that they should have had. At any rate, whether this was the cause of his colic or not, he rolled and kicked and tossed about that night at a prodigious rate. And when morning came, it was found that he had destroyed four square miles of standing timber. As all the trees were fine large ones, which his father had been intending to cut and sell to the sawmill as soon as it should be built nearby, he was very angry over the destruction that his intimate son had caused. We'll have to do something with that youngster, he said to the child's mother, unless we can manage to keep him out of further mischief. In another two or three weeks, there won't be a standing tree left in all Maine. And then, remembering the disappearance of his hams and the bacon the day before, he added, Nor a piece of smoked meat, either. If only we had a cradle for him, his mother suggested. Then we could tie him in and rock him when he gets restless. Perhaps that would keep him quiet. A cradle, eh? 
and Paul's father roared with laughter at the very thought. A cradle? Where could we ever get a cradle for a child that has outgrown a house? Well, I've been thinking about a cradle for him, retorted the mother, and it seems to me that perhaps you could build him something like a boat. Then we could tie him in it and anchor it out in the water in a safe place. And as long as he is there, we needn't worry about his getting into any more mischief. Not a bad idea at all, her husband exclaimed, really very much pleased with the suggestion. So he called in all of his neighbors to help him cut down the timbers and haul them from the forest to the biggest shipyard in Eastport. There, all the shipbuilders and carpenters along the coast worked as hard and as fast as ever they could at building the cradle. And before very long, the great log affair was launched from the ways and anchored out in the sea. Everyone was very glad when the task was finished, for all were fearful that some night Paul might get an even worse attack than the one he had suffered before and roll about until he destroyed everything in that part of the country. So there was the big log cradle at last, floating near the shore like a big ship at anchor. Great crowds of people came to see it, for it was the biggest craft that ever was built in Maine, and everyone willingly gave a hand toward getting Paul safely to put to bed in it. Even with so many working together at the task, it took them three full days to get the husky youngster into his new cradle and tied there with cables so that he could not fall out. It was very fortunate for everyone that the child was feeling well and in the best of humor, for otherwise he might have resented all the tugging and pulling which he had to undergo, and no one knows what fearful calamity might then have resulted. At last, in the place fixed for him, Paul began to like the sensation of being rocked by the waves, so well that he gave no further trouble for a while and his parents congratulated themselves upon the excellent arrangement they had made for their lusty son. His father hired a crew of men who were kept busy all the time, rowing back and forth between the cradle and the shore, carrying boatloads of food to him, and altogether Paul was as well satisfied as any child could expect to be. All went well until one night when he got the colic again. It is not known what caused his illness this time, but anyway... He rolled and tossed about so much that he stirred up the sea at a fearful rate. In fact, such a shaking up did his rolling cradle give the waters that a 70-foot tide drove up the Bay of Fundy, doing a tremendous lot of damage and even washing away several towns and villages. So high were the waves that they came near to rolling clear across the land and making an island of Nova Scotia. As a result of this disturbance, the waters have never entirely gone down, and even yet the tide which flows twice each day in the Bay of Funday is 70 feet high. Anyone, by looking at a map of that part of the Atlantic coast, can easily find where Maine joins Canada and locate the Bay of Fundy, which will prove the truth of the story and show what a mighty child Paul really was. Naturally, the people who had their homes and property washed away by the great waves which Paul had made were very angry, and they sent a committee to the governor to make a complaint. Ahem, said the governor, who considered himself a very wise man. More trouble, eh? And he frowned gloomily at them. As if I don't already have enough to worry me. What with the reports I have to make on this and that, 
The Indians I must guard against and all the very important details I have to take care of in getting ready for the ball I am giving tomorrow night. Huh! Tides, is it? And tides are part of the sea, aren't they? So I'll just pass this little matter over to the Admiral, who is well trained in all sea affairs. Doubtless he'll be able to stop the tides, if any man can, and locate whatever is causing them. So it happened, that very same day, that the Admiral got his fleet together, frigates and brigantines and sloops of war, and set sail to see what it was all about. He was in a very ill humor, indeed, being greatly displeased at having to miss the governor's ball, and he swore to be revenged on whatever or whoever was causing him all this trouble. He cruised about in his flagship, his fleet following him, but never a cause of the disturbance could be found. And the longer he searched, the angrier he became. At last, one of the lookouts up in the rigging of the flagship called down that he saw something suspicious off the starboard bow. What is it? roared the Admiral. I don't know, sir, called back the lookout. It looks like a big long barge or scow of some kind, sir. She's anchored near shore, sir, and she's rolling about and kicking up some big waves in a mighty strange manner, sir. The Admiral ordered the fleet to proceed in the direction the lookout had given, and he seized his spyglass to take a look for himself. Why, it's a baby, he shouted in surprise when the fleet had come nearer. And sound asleep, too, he muttered to himself a moment or two later. His mouth dropped open in amazement, for such a baby had never been seen by man before. He almost refused to believe his own eyes. But though Paul was sleeping rather quietly, for him, he still was rocking his cradle about a little. And as the ships grew, drew quite near, the admiral could feel beneath him the force of the waves which the child was stirring up as he moved about in his slumber. He suddenly began to get quite angry again. The idea! Sending him off, traipsing all over the sea and making him miss the governor's ball just to find a sleeping youngster. Asleep, is he? He growled. I'll soon wake him, all right. And he called his chief gunner to him. Fire a broadside over his head, he ordered. We'll see if that won't make him open his eyes. The gunners took their places, trained their pieces, and at the word, the 36th cannon of the frigate's broadside roared out. But Paul was in a very sound slumber indeed, and the tremendous crash of sound did not so much as make him flutter an eyelid. Give him a broadside from all the fleet, screeched the admiral purple with rage at the very thought of such an absurdity. So the guns of the whole fleet bellowed and thundered, sending their solid shot whistling close over the floating cradle and frightening the people on shore so badly that they all ran into the woods to hide, thinking that an enemy was attacking them. Roar after roar burst from the guns as broadside followed broadside, but it was almost seven hours before the noise so much as made Paul stir. Then... Calmly, just as the sound of the last broadside died out, he sat up, rubbed his eyes with chubby fists, and yawned. The red-faced admiral, in a greater rage than ever by this time, gave the command to fire again. 
With a great flare of sound, the cannonballs again whistled over Paul's head. Being asleep, he hadn't noticed them before, and now hearing the terrific crash of the guns for the first time, he was startled almost out of his wits. Making a great lunge and snapping the heavy cables which held him in his cradle, he leaped out toward shore, stirring up the water mightily in doing so. The admiral's red face suddenly paled with terror. Bout ship! Port your helm! He screamed frantically, and then had no time for further orders. The great waves which Paul had stirred up as he broke loose from his cradle swept down upon the fleet with a fearful roar and tossed the vessels about in a manner fearful to behold. When at last the waters quieted down somewhat, it was found that eight ships had been sunk and much damage wrought upon those that remained. The admiral, however, seized the floating cradle as spoils of war and towed it back to port where eight more warships were built from it. Thus the British Navy was just as well off as it was before, but the Admiral never did forgive Paul for making him miss the governor's ball. As for Paul, he reached the shores in safety and vanished into the woods. There he was found by his parents, who had fled thither into hiding as soon as the guns had first begun to roar. Being fearful of punishment for the trouble their infant son had caused, they did not go back to their former home, but slipped quietly away without a word to anyone. This boy of ours needs a lot of room, Paul's father growled. He was never made to live among neighbors. Yes, agreed the child's mother. We'll find a place back in the wilderness, far away from anyone else, where he can play and romp about as he pleases without endangering the lives or property of others. So through the woods they went, just where has never been learned, and deep in virgin country, they picked the spot for their new home. Thank you.